Welcome to the Water's Edge Podcast, a ministry out of Water's Edge Community Church in the heart of Houston, Texas. We hope that through this teaching, you'll find out more about the surprising, satisfying life that can be found in following Jesus. For more information about our church or teaching resources, head to watersedgehouston.org, all one word. Now for this week's podcast. Well, Daniel Webster, the writer of the Webster Dictionary, was in England. This is back in about the middle. And, uh, we do not care there. <laughs> um, he was at a party with many of the highest intelligentsia of uh, England, and basically they were all uh, atheist agnostics. But they understood that that Webster was a very committed believer, and they called him over, and they said, "Okay, Webster, we wanted you to give us." the single best defense you have for the existence of God. You can only choose one. Give us your best. How would you have responded? I think I would have gone with, obviously, the resurrection, uh, perhaps the deaths of the apostles. Um, You know what his answer was? One word, two words. The Jews. The Jews. And they asked, why in the world would you say that? He said, well, if you look at the history of the Jews, no nation, no peoples have ever been more attacked, have been more uh, sought to be er eradicated from the face of the earth, keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And when was the last time you met a Hittite? When was the last time you had a neighbor who was an Amorite? They're all long gone. And what we want to do is we're finishing up Galatians We come to a fascinating passage that I think is worth actually taking two weeks on. And it's at the very end, Galatians 6, verse 16. And Paul finishes out this great, great epistle as he says, And as many as walk according to this rule, this lane marker that he's been talking about all the way through the book of Galatians. And then in verse 15, he finished up by saying, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And basically, the entirety of the book is about supernatural living. And that's the lane marker that he has in mind. According to this lane marker, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God, which clearly is speaking of the genuine believers there in Galatia. And this this verse has caused a number of people to say, well, there really is no national Israel of God in terms of God's economy, in terms of what he's doing. Uh, there was at one time, but basically she's forfeited her place as a, as a nation before him. And now the only true Israel is composed of Jews and Gentiles. Basically, as you look at life, there's only two kinds of people. There's Jews and the rest of us, most of who are Gentiles. And um, what he's saying is that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's only Christ. And so since the church has become the new Israel. And so I think it's crucial to see two things as we're going to look at this, you know, at the end, bring back why this is so, so important. There is Israel as a nation that has a plan and a purpose under God that continues on to the end of time. And there is Israel as an instrument, and that is she's the chosen people of God to bless the nations around. And so... Many have surmised this actually didn't happen until sort of the middle of Augustine's life. For the first um, that's 400 years or so, the church clearly saw a distinction between the nation of Israel 
and the purpose of Israel as God's people. There was a clear cut, we call it premillennialism, if you're interested in that. Halfway through, Augustine was a premillennialist. And then he began to think, you know, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Maybe we've misinterpreted these passages. And he began a whole school of interpretation called allegorizing. And began to say, you know, all these things that we saw about Jesus literally returning, I, I think they're just a picture of the coming of the Holy Spirit, of all kinds of different things. And that basically, God's done with the nation of Israel. It's over with them as a nation. But the individual Jew can become a believer, and God will use them. And now the church has replaced Israel. And what, as I said, I think it's crucial to understand two things. One is that the church has not replaced Israel in terms of God having a plan for Israel as a nation. The church has substituted for Israel in terms of instrumentality, in terms of what Israel was supposed to be to the nations around and turned her back on that. The church has stepped in and so she does have a very parallel purpose, though she's not a parallel entity. So let's begin walking through this. When we start all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 12 is really the starting of the nation of Israel. God calls out a man named Abraham, or Abram here. He says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Next verse. I will make you a great what? Nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you what? Shall be a blessing. The Abrahamic covenant is the backbone of the Bible. The Bible really is incomprehensible without a good understanding of the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. And there is what's called the top line of the, of the Abrahamic covenant and the bottom line. The top line is God saying relentlessly, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you. And just as relentlessly saying, and you shall be a blessing. So we find in verse 3, it's a similar thing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth, what? Shall be blessed. So I will bless you monumentally, and you will become a monumental blessing to the nations around. You will become my conduit through which I'm able to reach out to the other nations that I care about just as much as I care about you. But that's the starting place. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Bible, there's two kinds of covenants. There's what's called an unconditional covenant and one that's called a conditional covenant. Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. God doesn't say, I will bless you if you do this. You will be a nation before me if you do this. Just point blank, no, this is going to happen. So we see this in Genesis 15, even more clearly. And this is the great passage where Abraham sees the stars. He believes what God says. It says that he believed him and was counted for righteousness. And now God is going to make a covenant. The phrase to make a covenant literally means to cut a covenant. And the practice of that day was to take an animal and cut the animal right down the middle. And so half, one person's here, one person's here. But it's a whole contract, if you will. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Next verse. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the two pieces. Next verse. On the same day, God made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants I will give, and it's the entirety of the land of Israel. I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the river of the great river, the river Euphrates. So notice here, to make his point, he says, this is so dependent on me, I'm putting you to sleep, Abraham. You have nothing to do with this. Take a nap, and I'll take care of the rest. 
And by the way, you need to know something. This land, the entirety of what we call the nation of Israel, will belong to your descendants. No if, no maybe. It's an absolutely guaranteed reality. Then we move a little further. And now we find a verse, and we'll come back to this next week, because this is a verse that shows, this is why I'm taking Israel. This is what, why I've chosen her. This is dealing a little more with instrumentality, but I think it's a good place to see this. God says to Abraham, or excuse me, Moses, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you what? To myself. All roads lead to Rome. Brought you to myself. Next verse. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. This is a conditional covenant. God's saying, if you are obedient, then you will be especially used by me, is another way to put it. Next verse. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, anyone see something kind of intriguing about the phrase, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. In Israel, the only people who were priests were the Levites. This is the only verse in which God says the entire nation is to be a Levite. The entire nation is to be a priest in this sense. What was the role of the priest? It's very, very simple. The priest spent his days going to God on behalf of men. It's called prayer. And going to men on behalf of God. Sharing the scripture. That's the entirety of their lives. Making sacrifice, prayer, and then teaching the Torah. But notice he says here, Israel as a nation, you're going to be my priesthood. And we'll come back to this as I said next week. Because we'll discover that's entirely how she was there to bless the nations around. But, <clears throat> but that gives us a picture of the instrumentality. Now we'll, we'll fast forward over to Jeremiah 30. What I want you to see here is this ongoing sense of God's continuation of unconditional covenant with the nation of Israel. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I've scattered you, yet I will not, what? Make a complete end of you. I'll correct you in justice and will not let you go together altogether unpunished. Yes, there will be judgment upon you for your disobedience, but notice he says, there will never be an end of you in totality. Move on. And this is really a classic verse, Jeremiah 31. It's part of the new covenant. And the reason I say this is <clears throat> ideas matter. And let me tell you in this context why ideas matter. Because Luther picked up on Augustine, and he believed that God was done with the Israelites. But he went way past that. So three years before he died, he wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies. I can't even read to you in this uh, setting what he says there. It's so vicious. It's so really just filled with uh, profanity. And it was just a virulent attack on the Jews themselves, basically calling them rats, calling them pigs, saying that the government should burn down all the synagogues. No, no rabbi should ever be allowed to teach. Pull it up on the Internet. You, it, you will be breath, it's breathtaking. The, the virulent anti-Semitism of Luther... Now, towards the very end of his life, it looks like he had at least a little bit shift of a heart, where at least in some of his writing, he starts saying, but we also need to show love to them and introduce them to the Messiah. But it's way too late by that time. Now, why does that matter? Because when Hitler began to come into power, and he began to demonstrate to the German people why they need to get rid of the Jews, 
the very first place he went was the writings of Martin Luther. When you go to Yad Shem, which is in Israel, and no, it's not if, it's when you go. It's an incredible portrayal of what happened in Nazi Germany, but what the very first thing you find as you walk through the different exhibits, the very first thing you find is the different um, letters that, that Hitler wrote as his speech using Luther as the basis for why we should get rid of the Jews. Ideas matter because ideas have consequences. And he was basically saying, along with much of the Christian world, God's done with the Jews. The individual Jew can become a believer, but in terms of the nation of Israel, he's done. He's washed his hands because of all their sin, because they turned their back on him relentlessly. Look at this passage. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the seas and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Next verse. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, what's he saying here? If there comes a time that you can no longer see the sun because it's eradicated, you can no longer see the moon because God's taken it out of play, you can no longer see the stars because he swept them up out of existence, when that happens, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being what? A nation before me forever. Now look at this next verse. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel. Why? For all that they have done, says the Lord. Next verse. Okay, it ends there. Notice what he's saying here in no uncertain terms. There's no amount of sin on Israel's part that would cause me to turn my back on the covenant that I made back with Abraham in Genesis 12. This is one of the clearest passages that you'll ever find on it. As long as you see the sun, as long as you see the moon, know for sure that God is still very, very interested in the nation of Israel. Now, one of the reasons this becomes crucial, and we're going to fast forward over into Matthew here and then come back. Two things have to happen before Jesus will return. He says, I'm not going to return until these two things happen. So let's look first, John, let's, let's do the Matthew 24 passage. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. So what's he saying here? Jesus said, I am not returning until there are men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9. And their song is worthy as a lamb, for you have redeemed us by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Until every nation, every people group, every family is reached and has a representative around the throne of God, Jesus says, I'm not coming back. And that's why Peter, begging the believers of his day, seeing, that, seeing these things will, will come, hasten his coming. How in the world do we hasten the coming of God? Second Peter chapter 3. We can hasten the coming of God, of Jesus. How's that? By getting on with the task and seeing that everybody is reached. And actually, a pretty good job is going on, but there's still a lot more that needs to be done. So that's one thing that has to happen. But the other thing that has to happen, and I rarely see this talked about, is in Matthew 23. And Jesus, <clears throat> night before he's being crucified, or looks out over Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together 
as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. What's he saying? I've reached out to you, to you for centuries, wanting to gather you under my wings, but you chose not to. You continue to go your own way. Ultimately, you will crucify me on the cross. Now look at the next verse. See, your house is left to you desolate. At the beginning of his ministry, you know what he said? My father's house, you've turned into a den of thieves. The same temple, guess what he says here? It's your house. My father doesn't live here anymore. It's your house. And it's left desolate. Okay, next verse. For I say to you, nation of Israel, you shall see me no more till you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see what he's saying here? You will not see me again. I will not come back until you invite me back. You must invite me back for history to be wrapped up or start being wrapped up. Like I said, I rarely see people talk about that. But that's exactly what has to happen. The two things that have to happen is all the nations are reached, but the nation of Israel actually invites Jesus to come back and to save them. And what we find, it's called premillennialism, is that there's three primary time periods. You have what's called the church age, which is what we're in right now. Then there's a seven-year period called the tribulation, and this is, begins when the Antichrist makes a covenant that ensures Israel's safety that goes on for three and a half years, and he breaks the covenant, and there's unprecedented bloodshed of, of, of Jews during that time period. And then at the very end, something happens that changes it all. Jesus comes back. But do you know why he comes back? Look at Zechariah. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. They will look upon me whom they pierced. And in so many words, they invite him to come back. Why? Because at that point in time, it's called the Battle of Armageddon. Again, when you're in Israel, you'll see the Valley of Megiddo. Napoleon said, this is the most natural, this natural battlefield on the face of the earth that I've ever seen. It's spread out. And in that day, it says the blood will run so high, it'll be up to the horse's uh, necks. And these nations that are fighting against each other and fighting against Israel, Israel will call out and Jesus will return. And it's at that point he saves what's left of the nation of Israel and they become believers in one day. So in Zechariah 13, he says this. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel will die during that time period called the tribulation. But one-third shall be left in it. Next verse. I will bring one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is, ref is, is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one of them will say, the Lord is my God. In other words, they've asked him to come back to save them. And that's the end of what's called the tribulation period, where Jesus returns, and the nations that have been fighting against other, each other, they turn and they fight against him one last time. And they're cast down, 
and then we enter into what's called the millennial kingdom. It's a thousand years of unparalleled righteousness, unparalleled peace, unparalleled <coughs> joy, as we've never seen before. And that goes for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed one last time. There's one last rebellion. He's put down, and then we enter eternity. And all of eternity from that point on is a place where there's no more tears, nor sorrow, nor crying. But this is basically <coughs> setting us up for the fact that the nation of Israel will remain intact, will remain a nation, until ultimately they come through the tribulation period, and at the end of it, they call upon him whom they pierced. They invite him to come back. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, you will never see me again until you shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That moves us into then what is one of the classic passages on this, and it's Romans 9 through 11, and we're going to stop after this. The question is, Romans is the most carefully sequenced, along with Ephesians, of all of his letters. And yet it seems like he just sort of drops right in the middle a huge three-chapter parenthesis about Israel and the nation. And it's like, well, it, what, what's the point there? And then he's going to get back, really, in chapter 12 to what he's been talking about all the way through, and that's spiritual life. Oh, that's a very important reason. The end of Romans chapter 8, he finishes with this great, great declaration for who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Neither death nor sorrow. He just walks you through the pantheon of everything that could go wrong. And he says, no, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. And he's been anticipating an objector all the way through the book. And he anticipates the objection. And the objection essentially is this. You say that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Well, what about the Jews then? What about the Jews? They forfeited God's love. God's turned his back on them. If he did them, how do we know he won't do that to us one day? And Romans 9 through 11, in large measure, is a defense of that erroneous thought. So in chapter 9, his basic answer is this. Oh, foolish man, who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to... to uh, require God to run the universe the way that you want it, so forth and so on. Basically, it's a strong, strong chapter on his sovereignty. God's the potter, we're the clay, so forth and so on. But that's not his only answer, that just sets it up. Chapter 10, his basic answer is this. God hasn't uh, rejected the Jews, the Jews have rejected God. That's the problem. He said, and there he says, I stretch out my hands all day to a disobedient and rebellious people, but they wouldn't come back. It's not that God rejected the Jews, it's the Jews rejected God. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, let's begin. I say then, has God cast away his people? Me genoito. The strongest Greek phrase there is for saying no possible way. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm in the picture. Then over in verse 11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Again, Israel. Again, certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now God's using this whole economy to make the, Gen the Jews jealous of what the Gentiles have entered into. But then it's all brought together in two verses. Everything we've talked about is brought together in these two verses. Verse 25, or three verses, 25 through 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until what? Until what? 
the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what has to happen before Jesus returns? The fullness of the Gentiles. All people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation must be around the throne. And this has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Next verse. And so all Israel, what? All Israel, what? So all Israel will be saved. Why? Because they called on him when they pierced. Fullness of the Gentiles, so all Israel will be saved. God has an economy for the church. He has an economy for the, the, the nation of Israel. As is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away in godliness from Jacob. Final verse. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And what we find is the nation of Israel that's left will enter into the thousand-year reign. The believers who are left, they enter as well. And guess what? You know, we'll be there as well. Now, what's the point behind all this? Let me put it another way. One out of three verses in the Bible, according to most scholars, has to do with prophecy. The only book God gave us to live by is called the Bible. One third of the Bible is talking about pie in the sky by and by. One third of the Bible is talking about what the, the vegetation in the deserts of Israel will be like during the millennial kingdom. But it doesn't address the most pressing issue in our lives. It doesn't tell us where we should go to college, contrary to what A&M believes. It doesn't tell us specifically who we should marry. It doesn't tell us specifically what our job should be. It doesn't tell us specifically where we should live. That's the pressing issues of our life as he leaves those unaddressed and he's giving us all kinds of information about the future by and by that doesn't seem to have, make any difference. Maybe the problem is this. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions. Because we're not gripped by eternal perspective. And as I've mentioned before, Lord of the Rings is a great place where Sam and Frodo are walking through the jungle, through the forest. And Sam turns to Frodo and he says this. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. That's the Bible, friends. The Bible's not about fixing our lives. That's not what it's primarily about. The Bible's primarily about the greatest story ever been told. It's about the tale of tales. And it's about how we get to fit in to where God's headed. The Bible's all about God. But boy, what a part we get to play. What a part we get to play if we'll take him up on it. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. And you know what the Bible allows us to do? And I'll pick this up next week. It gives us insider trading information the rest of the world doesn't know about. And they need to know about it. Suppose you knew for sure tomorrow morning which stocks were going to skyrocket and which stocks were going to crash. My guess is you would take advantage of that information. My guess is you would invest heavily in the stocks that are going to skyrocket and you would pull your wealth, whatever that's there, out of the stocks they're going to crash. Do you understand, friends, that's so much of what the Bible's about? It's about telling us, these stocks, they look great today, but they're going to plummet. These stocks, 
people don't really value them for what they are, but I promise you in some, one day they're going to they're gonna skyrocket. And so Peter puts it like this. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, insider trading information, in which the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will melt with fervent heat, the earth and all the works that are in it should be destroyed by fire. We're living on the decks of the Titanic. Only it's not going to go down in water, it's going to go up in smoke. And so what he's saying is, listen, as you look out, recognize there's a lot of wonderful things on this planet and you should enjoy them, but don't mistake them for home, as C.S. Lewis put it. Be wise in your investing. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will melt with fervent heat, the earth and all the works that are in it will be destroyed by fire, seeing that all these things will be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in a holy living and conduct, hastening the coming of the day of God? You know what he's saying? Here's the stocks that are going to skyrocket. Here's the stocks that are going to ensure that when you see the Lord for the very first time, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over the stocks that matter. I make you a ruler over many things. What are the stocks that matter? Godly character. What are the stocks that matter? The word of God. What are the stocks that matter? The souls of men. And that's why when Jesus left, he only asked one thing. He only asked one thing, and I end with this. The only thing he asked is that we traffic in the stocks that matter that we traffic in the things that account for eternity. He put it this way. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Men and women who will last for eternity, who become bridges over which the word of God, which lasts for eternity, will make its way into the souls of men. And they will turn around and they will do the same thing. You'll get no greater investment on your return than that. And also, godly character. Love, joy, peace. Be God's walking billboard. So that what we're reproducing is worth reproducing. We'll come back next week and see just how closely the purpose for Israel parallels what we're about today. But this, my friends, is why prophecy matters. This is why the Bible's given to us. This is why one out of three verses deal with prophecy. Because we begin, as Stephen Covey put it years ago, with the end in mind. And if we don't begin with the end in mind, we're not really sure where we're going in the text. Lord, thank you that you have given us such, such a clear view of what lies ahead, but not a perfectly clear view. There's still many things we don't fully understand. But we know this, that you're coming one day, you're coming to rule over the earth, and that in the meantime, we've fallen into the tale of tales. Lord, help us to play that part to the hilt. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll go back and offer the Lord's Supper, and then we'll have one last song.